0: being honest with ourselves. As a nation, for decades, we were perfectly happy to write off whole neighborhoods, whole cities, whole generations of young men and women. As long as it was an inner city problem, an urban problem, which is to say, a black people problem, a brown people problem. Send them to prison, into a system from which they'll never return. Maybe now, now that it's really come home to roost, now that it's the high school quarterback, your next door neighbor, your son, your daughter, now that grandma's as likely to be a junkie as anybody else, we'll accept that there has never been a real war on drugs. War on drugs implies an us versus them. And all over this part of America, people are learning there is no them. There is only us. And we're going to have to figure this out together.
1: Hello. Thank you for uh, listening This is the Call Tyrone radio show Um, My name is Zachary Leacock And I'm joined by my co-hosts Tyrone Boast And also Leroy Myers Um, I do have them here uh, on air Um, So we're going to provide the uh, introductions uh, In just one moment Today the topic of discussion Is going to be the war on drugs Um, So, um, first off, um, our host, uh, Tyrone Bose. uh, Please introduce yourself.
0: Yeah, this is uh, Tyrone. Uh, I'm the owner of BPPW Heating and Cooling. And uh, we're available for all your heating and cooling needs, so at reasonable rates. So feel free to call us, and if you have any need for a furnace to be installed, or an AC system at reasonable rates. And uh, this is like a second installment on the war on drugs, because I think uh, black people have actually slept on this topic. For a very long time, and it's time—it's it's actually time to wake up because it's affecting a lot of us in ways that we can't even imagine, and we'll go over that in the a, in a short uh, run. In Leroy. Uh,
2: hey, yeah. Uh, um, oh. Okay. Uh, Leroy. Yes, you introduce yourself. Oh, hey. Uh, my name is uh, Leroy Myers. Um, I'm a graduate student at the University of Oklahoma where I study um, African Native American history. Um, and, you know, going to the uh, the Bourdain clip, um, it's really interesting um, how he kind of makes, you know, these parallels to the war on drugs and what it's, what's kind of going on now today. Um, and I think that, you know, this clip especially, it alludes to... Um, what we're seeing right now with the, uh, the, with the uh, epidemic in regards to prescription drugs and how um, accessible they are to people um, nowadays, anyone, any color, any creed, any age.
0: Okay, let's, uh, let's uh, um, talk about the origin of war on drugs. Let's, uh, play a clip and we'll f- figure out what's the origin of war on drugs, and, and, uh, which led to mass incarceration in our communities, which is impacting us in negative ways.
3: It's important. I spent a lot of time talking in the book to understand the history of where the clear, drug war that.
1: came from. Oh, the you know, most planned.
3: people assume that the war on drugs was launched in response to the emergence of crack cocaine in inner city communities. That's just false. You know, Actually, the drug war was launched a couple of years before crack hit the streets and became you know, kind of captured public attention in the media. Um, The drug war was motivated by racial politics, not drug crime. Um, It was part of kind of a broader project that the Republican Party was engaged in then, you know, the so-called Southern strategy to try to appeal to poor and working class whites who were um, resentful of and threatened by desegregation, busing and affirmative action, um, poor and working class whites who were once solidly part of the New Deal, Democratic New Deal coalition, but who kind of the Reagan, um, um, uh, the, the Reagan administration realized could be won over to the Republican Party through kind of not so subtle racial appeals on issues around crime and welfare. So the drug war was launched as a way of trying to appeal to poor and working class white voters, saying we're gonna get tough on them, put them back in their place. Um, And them was not so subtly defined as African Americans. Um, When crack emerged, you know, a few years later, you know, the Reagan administration responded with glee. You know, they seized on the emergence of crack cocaine in inner city communities as an opportunity to build public support for the war. They actually hired staff um, to run a media campaign to publicize crack babies and crack dealers, um, crack mothers in inner city communities. And almost overnight, you know, images of black black you know, crack dealers and users just saturated the media and kind of forever changed our conception of who drug users and dealers are. Um, so I guess the short answer to your question is yes, there was racial motivation <laughs> for the launching of the drug war, um, but the racial motivation wasn't simply just to kind of harm African Americans. The motivation was to win over poor and working class white voters through implicit racial appeals. Just as slavery wasn't motivated by a purely sadistic desire to harm black people, it was motivated by greed, a desire to make money off of plantations. Race was the tool that was used to achieve that goal. Here, the drug war wasn't motivated solely by race, but race was the vehicle for them to achieve their political goals. And once the media imagery um, kind of saturated the news, the enemy in the war was racially defined. Law enforcement understood kind of who they were looking for, and I think the reality also is that there's no way law enforcement agencies could get away with anything remotely similar to the drug war in middle class white communities. You know, they use SWAT teams to execute routine narcotics warrants in these communities, Um, you know, busting down doors, you know, frightening um, folks terrorizing people in pursuit of the drug war, this kind of practices would never have gone over um, in middle class white communities. It's because those folks are marginalized and politically powerless that it has been convenient um, to wage a drug war in those communities um, primarily.
1: So um, that was Michelle Alexander speaking on uh, the origin of the war on drugs. Um, And um, that is a very uh, potent clip. Um, She's basically explaining uh, how and why um, everything uh, transpired in regards to the war on drugs starting. Um, And, you know, basically the racial motivations behind it, because there is uh, definitely a uh, racial component there.
0: Yeah, and, and let me let me let me let me add this, uh, Zach. Yes. A lot of people were probably wondering, what does it have to do with me? I'm not selling drugs. I'm not. I'm not using drugs. <laughs> but it, as was uh, some of our research indicated, as of 2001, one in six black males have been ha, ha, had uh, had arrest records. Now, if the trend continues, one in three black males born today will have arrest records. So that's saying, okay, if you got three black males in your family that are born today, then one of them will be arrested in their lifetime before they before they die. So it it does it does impact you. And um you have people uh some of the significant impacts of having large populations of people being criminalized is that it, it leads to violence and, and, and um joblessness and we'll discuss it later actually leads to violence as well. Um just this past year we had a we had a gentleman that was um say this uh in September uh he was a shock trauma worker, and he, somebody held him as a shield, <laughs> and, um, you know, they, they uh, you know, he was killed. He was held as a shield, you know, in front of the shock trauma building while he was waiting for the bus. Mm. Now, he had nothing to do with selling drugs. He had nothing to do with, uh, you know, uh, using drugs, but he was an innocent bystander waiting for the bus, and they used him as, as a shield. Um, uh, we had a uh, 71-year-old man just recently at NVA get, get killed. As the about You know, you got caught up in the crossfire. It had nothing to do with selling drugs or, or mass incarceration or any of that stuff. Man, i does that been to jail in jail, bike. But still, the fact that we have a uh, large populations of people that are criminalized, the only way they can make a living is off the streets because they can't find uh, suitable work to make money. And I'm not excusing. If, again, if you're involved in crime, get out of it because, again, your day is coming. But, but the fact that uh, we have large portions of people that have been criminalized uh, and felonized by the system. It's not good. It does not bode well for black people. And if you still, as I said all that, you don't believe it affects you? Wait until you're an older person and you go into that ATM to get your money out of the machine. And that junkie is behind you trying to get money for his drugs that he can't buy illegally. But he can certainly get illegally anytime he wants.
1: Right. And and from the millennial perspective, you know, um, it's it affects us in a way because of the numbers that you just spoke of. It creates a perception of all black males uh, being criminals. Uh, and when people see us uh, out and about, uh, even when I go to work, I have you know experiences with white people where they are kind of jarred by my presence in their space. And, you know, I always think about what exactly is going through their mind, and it must be all of the statistics that are always uh, blasted out throughout the news and the media uh, uh, by the criminalization of black males when, um, you know, the studies consistently show that... uh, you know, crime is done in similar rates um, in terms of, you know, uh, racial crime. Um, drugs are done in the same rates. However, we're being targeted, and it creates this perception, which is, you know, being blasted out through the media.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and and, um, and when you control for for joblessness, right, uh, uh, this book called The Disperience of Jobs, and it cited that when you control for joblessness, white males and, and, and uh, black males commit violence at about the same rates. Right. And um so yeah, it, it affects you. We still haven't and by the way, we still haven't found the um I spoke about an old man, a middle aged man. We still haven't found the um we have kids being killed. We still haven't found the murder of uh little Mackenzie Elliott, the three year old that was killed. You know, so and then and she had nothing to do with uh, you know, selling drugs or anything like that or uh mass incarceration. She she had nothing to do with that. But as it was, these people that I'm talking about, and I hate to use the word collateral damage, but it's a military term when they say the war on drugs. That's a military term. These people have been collateral damage and mass incarceration, in war on drugs, and uh, and a lot of those those uh, policies that were created in the in the '90s and '80s that arrested so many people, and because we'll say, well, it's because of kingpins and all this kind of stuff. Right. And almost 80% of those were for marijuana, simple marijuana possession, and you're criminalizing people and and taking away their basic human rights once they become felonized
1: right and it's not to excuse anyone who's actually you know out committing crimes however uh, incarceration is supposed to be a rehabilitation, to where you do your time and then you come out and rebuild your life. And uh, with the charges and the um, felonies that people get, they're unable to rebuild their lives, which you know creates more criminal behavior, which affects the community in the ways that you just spoke of. People can't get jobs, so you know they have to resort to uh, other means in order to just sustain themselves, and it's a self-perpetuating cycle.
0: Okay, let's, yeah. let's uh, talk about the, the effect of joblessness on, um, on this, uh, this social uh, pathology. Let's talk about the effect of, of, of joblessness on, on uh, violence in particular.
1: Okay, let's bring up the clip on uh, the effect on joblessness.
3: The secret is that communities that are plagued by exceedingly high levels of joblessness are likely to be violent. But a shift occurred here in Chicago and in communities across America, urban communities, beginning in the late 50s, early 60s, into the 1970s, where work disappeared. It used to be that factories would be located in urban areas near segregated black communities so those factories could have quick and easy access to cheap black labor. In fact, as late as 1970, more than 70% of all African Americans working in the Chicago area held blue collar jobs, factory jobs. Almost overnight, those jobs vanished. By 1987, the industrial employment of black men had plummeted to 28%. Due to deindustrialization, globalization, technological advancement, Factories closing down, jobs moving overseas. Hundreds of thousands of people, overwhelmingly black men, found themselves suddenly jobless, trapped in racially segregated, jobless communities. Trapped. Economic collapse occurred in urban areas across the country. Now, we could have responded to this crisis to this literal depression occurring in cities like Chicago and Baltimore and Philadelphia and Detroit and beyond, we could have responded to this crisis, this economic collapse, this literal depression with an outpouring of care, compassion, and concern. We could have responded with bailout packages, economic stimulus programs. We could have provided job training, particularly to young people coming up in these communities so they could make the rough transition from an industrial economy to a service-based economy. But no, we chose a different road, a road more familiar when it comes to matters of race. We chose the road of division, punitiveness, and despair. We, as a society, ended the war on poverty and declared the war on drugs. Black men found themselves suddenly disposable, no longer necessary to the functioning of the US economy precisely at the same moment that a backlash was brewing against the civil rights movement, a backlash that made it convenient for politicians to demonize black men as criminals as shiftless, as unwilling to work. And so this war on drugs was declared and black men found that they were no longer needed to work in the fields, no longer needed to labor in factories, and they found themselves scapegoats, pawns in political games, the enemy in a new war.
0: Okay, uh, what Michelle Alexander cited is the fact that impacted Baltimore as well. Um, uh, I, I, I worked as a union pipe fitter, and I was I going to different plants on the contract. And so I bear witness to a lot of those plants in the Baltimore area. Baltimore was once an industrialized town. So I can bear witness to a lot of those plants. Closing down. I actually helped to close some of them down. Um, you had Bendix Corporation. You had uh, Vista Chemical. These are good paying jobs for, for uh, blue collar black men. A lot of them didn't need college, and they still made upwards of, of $20, $30 an hour in these jobs. Okay, you, uh, food and machinery, Vista Chemical, and uh, Ferrell's Point Steel Yard, which once employed 35,000 people at the height of its productivity. So, as, as Michelle Alexander indicated, these jobs have vanished overnight due to globalization and, um, and sending jobs, offshoring jobs, sending them overseas. And without any plan to take the displaced workers, retrain them, and and whatnot, instead we were we were given this war on drugs. Which and I'm not look, I'm not taking away personal responsibility. Okay, I'm not taking away personal responsibility at all. But crime rates have not have gone up and went down in the past 30 years since the 80s. Up and down. Okay, they stayed about the same, and they're, they're probably lower now than they were in some respects, in, in some crime categories in, in the 80s. However, the prison population has quadruple, I mean quadrupled. I mean, in the '80s, you had 300,000 people in prison. Now you've got 2.3 million people in prison. So there is something wrong, and this can't be explained by, by uh, rising crime rates because the, uh, the prison crime population has not kept pace with the, uh, with the crime. it's outpaced by leaps and bounds. So there is a mechanism in place to, uh, to uh, incarcerate people in mass numbers, and the system is meant for you to uh, be recidivate back to the prison. There's nothing for you when you, a lot of times, because, uh, the, the, you know, yeah, there's programs. There's not enough of them, okay? And I hear, I know people are saying, yeah, there's programs these people and all that stuff. Uh, Michelle Alexander herself, she didn't coin the, the phrase, of New Jim Crow. She saw it on a poster, okay? She saw it on a poster, an orange uh, poster, and it said, Mass incarceration is a new Jim Crow, and she saw it. She was a civil rights lawyer at the time. And she saw that poster, and she just shook her head. Because She didn't always feel the way she does now. She shook her head. She said, stuff like that does more harm than good, comparing that to Jim Crow. That's a bunch of nonsense. And, and uh, I know it's a problem with the criminal justice system, but saying stuff like that is, is, um, is, is absurd. And it's just going to make people think you're crazy. And then she, she said a couple things. See, by the time she was done with her job at the ACLU, her her mind had totally changed, and she said those people were right, and they weren't crazy.
2: Uh, Leroy, yes, um, you know when when it comes to uh, joblessness, and um, I guess I'll, I'll try to put like a Baltimore perspective on it, um, and how you know um, industrial jobs, you know, left urban areas. Um, you know, whenever I come back home from Oklahoma, and you know, if I'm ever in Cherry Hill. Um, you can just kind of see, I guess, like, uh, you know, the, the, the old industrialized parts and how it was built by the waterfront. And although I'm not, I don't know too much of the history, but, um, you know, how originally it was, um, um, it was built for World war Black World War II veterans coming home from the war. And then how over time it's just, you know, just changed into public housing. And now it's a, a very big area um, where poverty exists. And so, um, you know, when I come back home, I always think about, you know, how Cherry Hill relates to what Michelle Alexander is talking about um, in, the new, in the, uh, the new Jim Crow.
0: And uh, by way, uh, won't give calls, uh, the way, we welcome your calls. The number if you want to call in is 410-481-1010. That's 410-481-1010. We'd like to hear from you and, and hear your ideas about this problem and how we can mitigate it. Because uh, it is a serious problem, and it's affecting us in in disproportionate numbers in this country. And it can't be simply explained by by crime.
1: Right, and when it comes to joblessness, um, as Leroy just stated, um, even in places like Sparrows Point, Uh, When, you know, I go past there, I can see the ghosts of what once was in terms of the jobs that used to be there. And, you know, I didn't experience it, uh, experience it in my generation. But I always hear stories of how you could just go out and get a job after high school and, you know, provide for your family and and things of that nature, uh, you know, relatively easily uh, without a degree. However, um, you know, now we don't have that. And it's not that you know, the perception that a lot of older people have is that we don't want to work. However, um, you know, there's a lot of kids out here that work in these low-page jobs, uh, these, excuse me, low-wage jobs, and, you know, people are, these kids out here, they are searching and looking for opportunity. Um, Now, we do have a caller on the line, uh, George. I'm going to bring him in uh, in just one moment uh, so he can offer his comments. Uh, George, you are on the air. Thank you for calling in.
0: Hey, how you doing? Um, I, w- I would like to say, basically, like I'm here in a conversation, and one thing that I think that is being missed in this conversation is the accountability as far as for us um, dealing with our day-to-day problems. I really think that a lot of us don't understand that the drug problem is a problem because we let it be that way. And then if you look at it like this, um,
1: George, the industrialization,
0: George. Huh? Mm-hmm. George, we've said over and over. We're not trying to say that anything gets post personal responsibility. All right. Now, even if, even if let's say we all stop doing crimes right now, again, let's say we all stop doing crimes right now, right? We still have large numbers of people with criminal records. Something has to be done about that. Okay, and, and, and you know, all personal responsibility is going to make that disappear. Okay. Now we need personal responsibility. We need people not to commit crimes, but People have we we don't commit marijuana we don't smoke marijuana any more than white people we're four times more susceptible to be arrested by that yeah the but, problem, I dont smoke yeah but marijuana. don't get me I don't wrong a jail record. i don't have a, I don't have an arrest record okay but don't don't, don't get me true. wrong. I'm not saying that we're not doing the same thing as everybody else, but just from my standpoint, just my opinion i don't i I can't speak for everybody else I can only speak for you know the people that I'm around every day. And, yeah, it is, to me, it's like it's not a lack of jobs. I think that it's because a lot of people don't want to take certain jobs or even want to work hard for what, what, what they have, you know. I think it's just much more easier to use the streets as a way to do uh, survival tactics versus to go to school every day, you know, at least try to get an associate's degree or something like that and work hard, you know. So I, I just don't really see the problem. I think we're more of the problem ourselves. George, George, have you ever been arrested? Huh? Have you ever been arrested? Ha- say it again, I can't hear you. Have you ever been arrested? Do you have a felony record?
1: He Do said, I, I have never been arrested.
0: Have you felony record, George? Oh, have I ever been arrested? No, I haven't been arrested. Okay, no. okay. So, so what I'm saying, George, is that because you've never been arrested, okay, and some of these people have actually some of these people have been, been framed with drug charges. I don't think they've been, been framed. Now, because you've never been arrested, you can never understand what a prison I used was to work in the prison Listen though. To me. Listen to me. You can never <laughs> understand what prison has been thrown out has to go through. I have I don't have a felony and I have it good. You know, I've worked hard all my life. You haven't worked doors. You haven't worked harder than me. All right. I've served in the military. Right? i you know, I've, I've been you know, I've been in all kinds of apprenticeships, I got a college degree, I've been in the press you know, I've been a 5 I've been a five year press. You have not worked harder than me. I don't care who you are. And so no, I just, I get what you're saying. But you can't explain it. So all this mass incarceration just based on, okay, well, you, you don't get a job because you don't want to try hard enough. Now, in the Sun article about Freddie Gray, for instance, they had, they had documented that Freddie Gray went to his job center several times. They had documents to document that. And Freddie Gray told his girlfriend, I can't find a job because I have a criminal record. According to Sun, oh, if you want to believe well, I've, son, t- I've talked about that before. When I, when I worked in the prison, the prison had systems set up for uh, people to come out and they get housing and they also get jobs paying over minimum wage. But it it, it depends on what you do as a person when you go inside the prison. You can use the system or you can go in there and still do the same things that you were doing that landed you in there because the prison has everything in the inside that is outside on the street. I, I really believe it's just the person at this point. I really do.
1: Now, um, I have a question. So uh, now the prisons do have resources for people um, to, you know, better educate and further themselves. However, once they get out, you know, no matter what they do, they still have that uh, that felony on their record. Um, So, you know, even if they are able to better themselves and get an education there, uh, it still excludes them from a huge swath of the of the job opportunities that exist
0: that's that's not true because i, I could when, when the next time that I see you or whatever George, or if I could George, pull it up for for your next show George, I have a list George, of all the jobs George, that you can George, get once George, you get out of out of out of incarceration and George, this is George. this is something that is well, very no but like I said people don't take advantage of it and George. it's not minimum wage paying jobs yours okay I. <laughs> There are there are plenty of jobs that that you and I have that we know people can't get get them if they got a, a criminal record. You know you know you can't be a, a correctional officer. You know my son was a correctional officer. Okay, so I, I know about the prison system. I, you know I, I know you know they are programs, but you know you I know for a fact there are certain things that I've done in my life that if you had a criminal record you wouldn't be able to do it. I can say all, all I can say all take all the time the world and say do like I did, be like me. Okay, but a lot of these people can't be like me because they got a record. All right, I've got. Security clearance in the government. You're not gonna get a secret security clearance if you got a, a felony, or even a misdemeanor. In most cases, okay. So yeah. don't don't play like like okay. Every if you got go a record, it doesn't matter. It does matter, and it does. But matter. no, what, what I'm saying is it does matter. But at the same time, you got to also think about the accountability factor as well. I agree. Like okay, what what about thinking about all that before you do something that lands you in prison, even with right. the marijuana laws and getting charged with higher for higher penalties for uh, non-violent um, crimes and this, that, and the third. I mean, if you buy some weed, you get caught with weed, you know automatically that's the jail sentence. If you do something wrong with crack, if you shoot somebody, anything of that nature, if you live illegal, then you get the penalty of whatever. So you know, at the end
1: of the day, it's still okay. the, it's still oh, the accountability. Okay, oh, okay, gentlemen. Uh, we do have a limited amount of time, so unfortunately, okay. we are going to have to cut this short. But we thank you so much for your um your input, George. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you. you know, this is a very important conversation. Uh, any um uh, final thoughts, Saron? Yeah, I would say by George's
0: estimation, Barack Obama
1: should be president of the United States because he spoke to Um. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: they are. Go ahead. Where's that? Um. Oh, I'll, I'll continue.
0: Yeah, but but uh, Barack Obama couldn't even be an officer in the military because they because he admitted to smoking marijuana. Mm-hmm. Okay, but but he is commander in chief of the armed forces, and rightfully so because he's qualified for that job. That was not nothing for us. That was not held against him. And and these uh, these these even if we, and I believe in personal responsibility. I do, and I believe in trying the best you can and doing working what you got. But at the same time, no matter what, if we just all stop committing crimes right now, mm-hmm. this, right this second, we still have large number, hundreds of thousands of black males with criminal records. And they've had the right thing. Well, in some states, you can't get food stamps right. with, with uh, criminal records or public housing.
1: Okay. So well, it,
0: it doesn't have an impact. I'm
1: sorry. Right. So um, we're just a little bit over time now. So we thank you for listening to the Call Tyrone Radio Show. Uh, keep checking us out every week uh, at uh, 2 p.m. Um, on Mondays. And uh, thank you so much, Baltimore.